Hello and welcome to the Borders of Equality podcast. This is a podcast made at Leiden University where we talk about immigration, the welfare state and inequality. We'll be covering things like welfare tourism, welfare chauvinism and other isms that connect immigration and political economies around the world. This podcast is made possible by Leiden University and the Dutch Science Foundation. I'm Alex Afonso and I'm here with our guest Lorenzo Piccoli to talk about the corona crisis and its consequences for international mobility. Since the beginning of the pandemic, countries around the world have adopted drastic measures to contain the spread of the coronavirus. This included the lockdowns and social distancing measures that affect our daily lives, like the closing of workplaces, schools and restaurants, but also suspension of international travel. Most countries around the world have closed their borders to tourists and sometimes even to their own nationals. Some impose lengthy quarantines to people returning from abroad. We are lucky to have Lorenzo Piccoli on the podcast. Lorenzo is a scientific officer at the Swiss National Center for Research on Mobility on the Move at the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland and the researcher of Global Seat at the European University Institute. He has been tracking restrictions on mobility since the beginning of the crisis. So, Lorenzo, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Very nice to have this opportunity to present my recent work. So, you've been doing some research on, on the restrictions that have been applied uh, during the corona crisis on international mobility. And, and my understanding is what we seem to be witnessing is it's just a very sudden interruption of something that at least I thought had become the new normal, that is the ability to hop on a cheap flight and go anywhere to cross borders without being controlled, at least within Europe. Now, now everything is closed. So you've been tracking this progressive closure of the world in the last few weeks. Uh, how did it start and how did it diffuse? Well, so if we have to put a starting date, I think uh, that would have to be January 24th. Uh, that's when the Marshall Islands, which is uh, an archipelago of islands in the Pacific Ocean, introduced um, a restriction to people coming from, from a few countries, from China, from Macau, and from Hong Kong. And that, as far as we know, at the moment was really the first um, in restriction to, to international travel. Um, at the time, there was an epidemic already in, in, in those countries, in, in China mainly. And um, a few days later, many other governments took the uh, same decision. So they restricted travel to people coming from, uh, from China mainly. Um, for us in Europe, the Big Bang, if, uh, if I may call it that way, happened in March, because until the end of, of February, um, we had about 70 countries restricting uh, um, international travel, mainly from China. Again, in March, a few important things happened. Um, the first was the decision of the US government to uh, limit travel from the Schengen area. Um, and that really triggered um, a chain of other decisions in, in American countries and, uh, and beyond. And at the same time, um, it was, I think, March uh, 11th, um, we saw the first restrictions uh, within European countries. So Austria um, started controlling uh, the border with, uh, with Italy on March 10th. And then on the 11th, also 
uh, expanded uh, controls to other countries, Switzerland and Liechtenstein. And shortly afterwards, Hungary and then all other countries or almost all of the other countries in the Schengen area followed. So March uh, is when we saw an acceleration of, uh, of those restrictions. Uh, that's, that's when they really reached uh, uh, Europe. And um, this was also the moment when countries um, decided uh, to introduce restrictions to people coming from pretty much anywhere. So as I said, in, in February, most of the restrictions were targeted on China. And instead, uh, March is the moment when uh, those uh, restrictions become uh, generalized. And today, uh, today is um, we are in the middle of May, and we have um, over 180 countries that uh, that restrict international uh, travel. So that's so it's basically all countries in the world, almost. Yeah, virtually. There are a few. You know, I've, I've seen. Uh, very small countries like Andorra, until a few days, uh, didn't have any travel restriction. Um, but that's because it's uh, essentially impossible to reach those countries uh, without uh, passing through other uh, other states. And uh, there are a few exceptions, like um, Ireland and the UK um, have... Um, With the open border, that must be difficult as well. Uh, yes and no. The the thing is, with so many other restrictions in place uh, worldwide, uh, even if people in theory can travel to another country, practically it's extremely expensive and very complicated. Uh, so those countries are um, really witnessing a, a minor number of passengers traveling there. So yeah, this this was a very quick acceleration in only... Uh, a couple of months, uh, we passed from zero restrictions to uh, 180 or more. And we saw a very quick uh, diffusion from mainly from Asian countries to um, America and Europe and only later on Africa. What seems to be interesting is that these restrictions on mobility always seem to be delayed in relation to the, to the actual diffusion of the virus. Because if you think about all these countries in Europe or or, or the United States who, who stopped travel from China at the moment where China was actually probably getting the virus under control, whereas the virus was spreading at a much ha at a much faster pace in, in the US. Yeah, it's very um, bizarre sometimes. It's very difficult even for us to make sense of uh, those restrictions. Um, it's also important to stress that there is no scientific evidence uh, behind uh, those choices. Uh, so that even the World Health Organization has repeatedly uh, advised against introducing those uh, restrictions to, to travel. Um, but yet countries have, have taken those measures at the moment when uh, the virus was, uh, was already present. Again, there are a few exceptions. Um, the case of the Marshall Island was uh, was interesting. The virus uh, wasn't wasn't there, and in, in those islands, of course, it's um, extremely dangerous to let the virus in. So maybe there there was a, a healthcare uh, rationale. Uh, but you mentioned the case of the U.S. and of many European countries. It it does seem that in those cases it's more of a theater stage you know you try to depict the virus as, as something foreigner 
yeah. uh, coming into your your country, and um, and the restrictions are introduced at the time when uh, it doesn't make too much sense anymore. And if I may add one thing, uh, what is very interesting from my perspective, because what we try to do at our research um, center in in Switzerland at the NCC on the movies to study different forms of mobility uh, together. And what we see in, 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 in the context of this COVID-19 pandemic is that the restrictions to internal movement within the countries, uh, those, they do seem to have a strong scientific basis. And, and countries often justify them uh, um, by um, by relying on uh, scientific reports and scientific committees, right? So I'm talking about uh, social distancing and the obligation to stay at home uh, and those kind of things. Uh, but the restrictions to international travel instead, uh, uh, they have been taken without any scientific evidence and uh, without explaining why this should make any sense from the medical perspective. Yeah. Isn't it also because international travel is much easier to, uh, let's say, constrain and control than internal travel? Because that's part of what, you know, the state is, is, is supposed to do. It's, it's part of the remit of what it actually does, controlling immigration, whereas prohibiting people from going to the supermarket or, or going out of their house is not really part of the usual repertoire of states, at least nowadays. Um, again, yes and no. I'm not so sure. In many cases, the level of you know integration on the border was uh, already pretty advanced. And you see that by trying to control certain forms of movement internationally, um, you can have huge um, consequences on the supply chain, for example. So in the last two months, uh, many states were really struggling with the problem of introducing restrictions uh, to international travel and then realizing that those restrictions were actually really detrimental. Um, I'm thinking of truck drivers, again, the, the supplies of, of food, uh, but not only food. Um, I'm thinking of seasonal workers. Uh, that's a big debates nowadays. Mm -hmm. So there I think what we have been observing as we were constructing the data set uh, that we used to keep track of those restrictions is that governments were really trying to adjust uh, as, as time went by um, those restrictions, allowing certain categories of people in and, uh, and excluding others. So of course we can make a few example, examples there. Seasonal workers um, is, is one category that initially was, was left out, and now many governments are trying to create channels um, for, for seasonal workers to come in. Another obvious example is that of, of medical personnel. Um, you know, by closing the border, you also prevent people who can potentially help you to deal with the with the pandemic to to come in and there also there has been an opening um and uh another case very important case is that of the people who, who work on the border 
Uh, now you 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 come from Switzerland originally, and I, I I work and normally live there, even though I'm not in Switzerland now. And the case of Switzerland is interesting because um, there was a um, an intense political debate about what to do with the border with Italy. Uh, Italy in March was uh, of course one of the hotspots of the of the pandemic. Um, and uh, Switzerland wanted to uh, close the border, but at the same time, at the same time, a lot of people working in the healthcare sector in Switzerland, in particular in Ticino, in the canton of Ticino, which is the, the canton that borders the region of Lombardy, uh, they come from Italy. Um, I think studies show that up to one third of the healthcare personnel come from from Italy. So closing the border paradoxically would have led to a collapse of the healthcare um, sector in, in Ticino. So you do have to grant exceptions. And I think governments have been really struggling with, uh, with that. I think you would have a similar proportion in Geneva also, for instance, uh, the, the for sure. nurses in, in, in hospitals in Geneva are probably about half are from, from France as well. Yeah, exactly. In Geneva, I think we are at about 50% uh, with uh, a lot of um, a lot of people coming from France, as you say. Yeah. So indeed, you closing the border, I think you can, politicians, uh, some politicians in particular um, might want to take uh, some pride in that, but, uh, but to do it practically, it's very difficult. And that's why we speak about um, uh, additional controls rather than shutting down the border altogether because the latter is, is almost impossible to do and mm-hmm. certainly detrimental to, to the country as a whole. What, what, the, what the crisis seems to have revealed as well is, is, is the dependency of, an, of so many economic sectors on, on, on migrant workers. And, and you, you talked about seasonal workers, especially in agriculture, I don't think that many people realized that all the all the goods and and the vegetables that they would find in their supermarkets in the UK in Germany their uh, their asparagus and all of that relies to a, a huge extent on the availability of migrant labor and and it's only when international mobility becomes more difficult that I think that people have started you know realizing that otherwise I don't think that's really part of people's common understanding yes indeed i mean we realize we, we realize now that um on on so many different aspects of our life of, uh, of the world that we have constructed we rely enormously on the movement of people and much of this movement is international movement so you you mentioned of course the supply of um, of food uh, but another example I have in mind is that of care workers. Uh, uh, there were big problems in um, in Austria and in Germany because uh, um, a large amount of the people who who take care of the elderly uh, come from Eastern European countries, and in the context of the pandemic, they were they were stuck and they they couldn't go to Austria and Germany, and so a lot of elderly people were left without assistance. So international movement there, it's, it's clearly essential to guarantee um, a certain level of, of, of protection and, again, the supply of uh, essential food. But then we also see how movement within the countries um, is so important. Many of us, including myself, 
uh, were relying on the activity of, of people shipping uh, goods uh, at home. I received uh, uh, important packages from, uh, from Italy. Uh, and I'm not talking about food. You know, there is this stereotype uh, of Italian kids uh, receiving the, 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 the pack of pasta. From and their mama. Exactly. Yeah, my mama didn't send me that. Um, but, uh, but my aunt, she did send me masks because masks were not available in France at that uh, at the time in the oh, pharmacy. Wow. So and then that way they, they were shipped uh, at home from from people initially moving across the border and then moving here in, in France. And, you know, there have been people receive all sorts of, um, of goods um, in their houses, which points, I think, to a very interesting paradox again. Uh, it's, it's, it's a time of paradoxes. And the paradox here is that the, for some people like myself, immobility is, is a luxury that I can afford, I can, in, at the time of a pandemic, when it's arguably dangerous to leave the house, I have the luxury I can stay home, work from home, receive goods from home, and I can do that because there are other people who are moving for me, and they are the ones who are exposing themselves to the to the virus. That's precisely, so that, that connects nicely to another issue that I wanted to, to talk about, also that relates to your research, is the inequalities related to these uh, restrictions on, on mobility. So you just mentioned that some people uh, have the luxury to be able to work at home and it's probably closely connected to um, you know, income, for instance. People who are on lower incomes, those that work at supermarkets, who do deliveries, that drive buses, they tend to be probably poorer and also probably more likely to be immigrants. Yeah, I think there is uh, a very interesting study by the European Commission, uh, which was published um, a couple of weeks ago, where they try to um, evaluate. We have been speaking so much about essential workers or key workers uh, during this um, pandemic. And so they try to understand who uh, these uh, key workers are in, um, in Europe, in the European Union. And what they find is that uh, 13% of uh, what we call key workers are migrants in the in the EU in certain sectors for example if we think about cleaners or people who work in in, in mines uh, the numbers go up to one third so indeed here again that there is coming together of different forms of movement the people who um, have to move a lot and, and do works that are essential for society are very often uh, people who were not born in that uh, in that country, and indeed they are very exposed to the to the virus in this in this context. It made me think of, of a piece that David Graeber, the anthropologist at the LSE, wrote a few a few years ago on bullshit jobs. You know, all these jobs with fancy job titles like strategic business development consultant that that could basically disappear it wouldn't really make a difference in the world and it seems to me that migrants are a lot less likely to perform this kind of bullshit jobs that are, that are not essential yeah yeah indeed um even though i have a, a common friend actually we won't name names but he's an academic as uh, we are 
And he told me, you know, I realize my job is so unessential at the moment, and I really hope nobody finds out. Otherwise, they're gonna cut my position very soon. <laughs> so I think it's it's all a matter of uh, it's all a matter of perspective. But uh, for me, I mean, going grocery shopping here in in France and um, welcoming the people who were bringing um, goods at home. And um, looking at the people working in the hospitals, it's, I mean, it's obvious that many of those people are, um, are often foreigners. When you, um, in relation to the, to the theme of inequalities and, and how these restrictions that I talked about before affect different groups of people in, in asymmetric ways, uh, what can you say about, you know, uh, the groups that are the most negatively affected also within the group of, of migrants, for instance? So I can't answer uh, the question only by myself because I think we would need someone who is an expert of um, inequalities more, more broadly conceived. Uh, but what I can tell you is I think the combination of having a migrant status and a low salary uh, in these um, condition is is a bad combination, that's quite clear, because it exposes you to a double um, a double vulnerability. We all know, of course, that having a, an insecure job or a very low salary, uh, it's, uh, it's a very dangerous position to be in, in the context of this pandemic, when many people are becoming jobless and they might not have um, help from, from, from the state. Being in a, having a migratory status might expose you to um, additional um, vulnerabilities. Um, now, we, we speak of migrants in, uh, in fairly general terms, but um, there are a lot of different uh, migratory situations. One example is, is that of uh, families who are built over migration. And I know many people who right now cannot be together with their partner or cannot be together with their husband or wife or kids uh, because of those international travel restrictions that we that we mentioned before. Uh, that is one case. Another case, obviously, is that of um, asylum seekers who are traveling to a country and in many countries um, right now, even they are not allowed uh, to cross the border. So what is already an extremely difficult journey has become a nearly impossible one. And um, I was reading the figures uh, in Europe. I think the number of asylum seekers arriving in, in, in European countries has, um, has um, crumbled in, uh, in, in April, unsurprisingly. We already mentioned the case of seasonal workers. Their source of income depends on being able to move to another country. And a lot of them at the moment cannot do that. And um, I think in many cases, also people who work across the border are prevented to do their, their work. So the case of, of Switzerland that we mentioned before is maybe the exception. There it was, uh, the, the Swiss government realized it was necessary to make an exception. Um, but in many other communities, I'm thinking of the, the border between the U.S. and Mexico, for example, uh, people are prevented from, uh, from crossing the border. And finally, and I think that's the most extreme case of, of all, 
the the people who are stuck in a detention center uh, waiting uh, for their asylum request to be processed are exposed to new kinds of vulnerability. I think we have all read reports um, of um, how the virus uh, um, circulated very quickly in those um, detention centers, for example, in Greece or on the border between Mexico and the US, just because it's impossible to exercise any kind of social or physical distance in there. Oftentimes, people don't have clean water, they cannot wash their hands. So they are particularly exposed to um, inequalities that people like myself um, don't have to endure. Do you think that, that this crisis is also being used by some governments to uh, enforce restrictions with taking the, the, you know, the, the health issues and the health risk as a justification for something that they, that they also wanted before the crisis, perhaps? Well, that I think it would be nice to have some, uh, some scholars from the US who follow American politics quite closely. It's quite clear that um, this pandemic is allowing uh, the president of the US to do many things that he had uh, promised to do before his election. Um, it's quite clear that governments with um, uh, so-called populist uh, uh, leader in place have uh, have been very fast in uh, in closing the borders. Uh, Hungary is another case in mm-hmm. point. Um, it's difficult to say how much this will really serve their agenda because again the economic um, consequences are going to be huge. And as we all know, those governments they they prosper on 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 both uh, their. Uh, agenda when it comes to migration and their economic uh, uh, promises. Uh, So there, again, there might be a backlash. Uh, But indeed, one thing we want to do in the future with the data set uh, that we are building is is trying to see whether there are correlations um, that come from example, uh, from being an authoritarian government. Uh, Our expectation would be that an authoritarian government would be much quicker in enacting uh, uh, travel restrictions. Uh, But also another thing we want to do is explore uh, whether there is uh, an endurance of certain colonial ties. Um, This is, uh, this stems, if you want, from the case of Australia. Uh, Australia is a very interesting case because um, the government introduced travel restrictions to um, China initially in uh, the month of March, uh, but it did not introduce restrictions um, against the UK or the US when the number of cases was uh, quickly on the rise in those two countries. And uh, and those restrictions only arrived much later at the time when pretty much all other countries had already introduced uh, blank uh, uh, travel bans. So this is just an intuition. But um, as we were saying at the beginning of our discussion, um, we expect uh, travel restrictions uh, to be only rarely correlated to you know, healthcare reasons and to be driven very often by other political factors. Do you think there is any, uh, let's say, overall logic to, um, to, 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 the, to these restrictions in terms of 
which citizens and which countries are targeted. So now I assume that if every country has closed their borders, there's not that, that much variation, but why should one country allow people from you know, the UK, whereas the numbers were really going up really quickly, whereas it would close for another country where the situation might be might be different. Do you know, do you think there are maybe cultural, stereotypical or political or economic factors that could shape that? I guess it's difficult to, to, to say something about this that early on. Yeah, this is speculation, of course. What I find uh, very peculiar is that we do in our data set, we, um, we have an automatic ranking of the countries that are most affected by, by those restrictions. So which countries have the highest number of, of restrictions in place against them. And we observe that still today, the country with, uh, which is uh, the, the main target is, is China, which doesn't make sense. I think from, from a medical point of view, countries like the US are doing much worse in terms of uh, dealing with the with the with the virus at the present moment, so I here again uh, I want to be very careful because it's just a speculation, but um, but in, for sure there are um, signals that uh, it's not only rational considerations uh, uh, behind those decisions. Uh, there are um, cultural reasons probably, and there might also be. Um, Political reasons due to you know international partnerships uh, and uh, and um, economic agreements uh, that might make certain countries more reluctant to introduce restrictions against other other countries. Uh, but this is why I think it could be interesting to keep monitoring the the ranking of of countries that are most affected, especially in the summer, because we do expect a certain easing of the of the restrictions um, starting from June and so there it will be interesting which countries will be let's say off the, taken off the hook uh, uh, quicker than than others what you show in your research also is is the, um, the enhanced role of citizenship and something that struck me is how citizenship all of a sudden came to matter a lot more in terms of the rights that were conferred to people, especially, for instance, those stuck abroad. I remember reading an article in The Guardian where the, the, I think they said that the, if you were stuck abroad, let's say in Peru, there were these repatriation flights that could bring you back to the UK and, and you would benefit from it if you were a British national, but not if you were a foreign national, even one with a they call it indefinite leave to remain in the UK, but basically the British government wouldn't do anything for you. And if you are a Polish, Portuguese or Italian person living in the UK, it wouldn't really help you that much to be brought back to Italy or to Poland. Do you think yeah. that, this, that, that this has been the case? Yes, for sure. This is part of um, the research I've been doing together with Jelena Jankic, my colleague at, um, at Global Seat. And, and then we see yet another paradox. This is probably the third paradox that we mentioned today. So governments have um, taken a very broad approach uh, when it comes to the decision on who can return to the country. 
Um, a lot of governments uh, still allow both uh, their own citizens and their own residents to return to the country, which uh, which uh, is not necessarily what we were expecting. But then, as you say, uh, when it comes to rescuing people abroad, then clearly governments have only rescued their own citizens. And this is probably the biggest repatriation operation in the in the recent history. Um, in Europe only, um, more than half a million people have been repatriated from mainly from Asia and from the Americas. Uh, so it's huge numbers. And people might take this lightly, uh, but they sh- It's more than, than Dunkirk. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, in many ways, this pandemic is, is bigger than a war. Uh, so this, this was uh, a massive operation and an extremely expensive one, right? Because to bring a, a person back home entails um, a series of action. You need to mobilize your own embassy. You need to coordinate uh, with the local institutions, uh, and you need to organize medical support. Uh, you need to organize the flights. Uh, oftentimes, you cannot rely on commercial flights because they were completely disrupted. So you need to send a charter plane. So this is extremely expensive uh, to do. That's also why uh, this was really branded as one of the achievements of um, of the European Union. In this context, the uh, European External Action Service um supported the the action of the member states and actually organized about 50,000 of those repatriations so i think um, more or less 10% uh this is really again used as as an achievement and as a proof of of european cooperation at a time when european cooperation was arguably quite weak in many other domains um but but that was also used uh, from national governments to show that they really care about their own citizens and that the status of citizenship can save your life. To what extent? I'm not sure, because again, we see uh, some paradoxical development of families who were rescued from China in February and brought back to, let's say, the United States, for example, and now they find themselves in a place that is all of a sudden even more dangerous possibly than, than when they were initially. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, a very symbolic um, operations that, operation that states have been, um, have been performing. Uh, but it's paradoxical because, again, it's not only citizens who are allowed to travel back. And uh, in, in a few countries, the public measures that are taken inside the country do not only target uh, citizens. So I would be a a bit reluctant to say that in this context, uh, uh, it is only the status of citizenship that that makes a a difference. That is really up to the governments to decide. And we see that some governments are indeed prioritizing their own citizens and others are not. So what you show in, in one of your uh, in one of your uh, pieces related to this project is how certain countries I think you mentioned the, the U.S. and, and Australia that uh, the measures that have been taken to uh, let's say compensate the economic effects of the lockdown so these you know wage protection programs and and 
measures to um, to uh, to to mitigate the the economic effects in terms of employment uh, target only nationals is is there any difference across countries in 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 this extent of limitation and exclusion do you think right exactly that's that's what i had in mind when i said not all governments are going down this path um, in europe we uh, spoke a lot on the newspapers about the case of portugal yeah. portugal um, about a month ago decided to um, uh, grant um, the status of uh, of um, regular migrant to a lot of people who had just filled in their registration, so they had to still go through the process. Uh, this is actually this is a, this is a, a case that stands a little bit in opposition to the U.S. and um, and Australia because thanks to this measure, um, a lot of migrants in Portugal have access to public health care and to social welfare. Um, but the actual number of people who can benefit from that measure is relatively uh, small. Mm -hmm. uh, estimations say that it's actually only one quarter of uh, migrants who are still in a, say, in a precarious position. Another example, maybe a better one, is the case of Ireland. Ireland, the government of Ireland decided to extend certain uh, welfare measure and uh, public health to all people in the territory, regardless of their status. Uh, so potentially even irregular migrants can apply uh, for, um, for, uh, for social support. And this really shows you know, consideration for other um, statuses than only for, for citizenship. Uh, in many European countries, access to public health is um, already um, expanded to cover also irregular migrants and, uh, and stateless people. Uh, but in some countries, it's not. And one really has to wonder, that's the case of Sweden, for example, one really has to wonder what happens there if those people get sick and, and cannot go to the hospital. Uh, this might this is of course for for irregular migrants themselves, but it's also in a situation like this a huge risk for the whole of the population. So certain countries again are facilitating access to public healthcare and um, and 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 others aren't and, and this is really a fundamental difference, I think, in the way you deal uh, with this with this pandemic. It's also what, what came to my mind in the sense that you, you could you could understand these movements to extend protection, especially in terms of healthcare, to to migrants as as a generous kind of movement, but you could also understand it as a purely self interested policy in the sense that you don't really have an interest in the disease spreading through uninsured populations, which is a big problem in the US, for instance. For sure, as many other things in this crisis, I mean, we, yes, indeed, that's very clear when we think of uh, granting uh, access to healthcare for irregular migrants, but it was also a huge part of the discussion um, in terms of, you know, European solidarity. It's not in the interest of countries to have their neighbor um, 
getting huge numbers with the pandemic because, of course, you might be able to restrict a bit mobility on the border, but you won't be able to to stop international movement altogether. So there also, there are a lot of choices that would make sense from a medical perspective, uh, but it's not always easy to justify them politically. And thinking again of, you know, shipping masks and medical equipment across countries uh, um, is yet another form of movement. It would have been very beneficial for countries to do that and very rational, uh, but there were strong resistances against uh, against that. So, so I think that's one of the paradoxes of this crisis is on the one hand, a movement towards more nationalism and, and unilateral responses to, to the crisis, for instance, with countries trying to poach masks and, and patents and vaccines from other countries and respirators and what have you. On the other hand, also maybe a, a greater understanding of the interdependence between countries, because if you are Switzerland, you don't have an interest in, in, in the disease spreading widely in Italy and France. Yeah, I mean, it might sound a bit of a cliche, but uh, this crisis, uh, this situation really shows um, how much we are we are in this together and we need to rely on on other countries and on, on people outside of our borders. You make the example of Switzerland that's, you know, it's a it's a long discussion in uh in our field of study, smaller countries have a much greater dependency on what is going on outside of their borders. But then again, I think also for huge countries like um, Canada, the US or Russia, uh, coordination with other um, partners abroad is extremely important. And again, reliance on people who come to 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 take the crops from your fields, from other countries, uh, to bring certain uh, forms of medical equipment that you you may not have, uh, who bring in medical expertise, uh, for example, and uh, who bring in certain kinds of food that you don't have are extremely important. And um, yes, indeed, it's an opportunity to 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 see those things, but at the same time, it's also and. We are seeing that it's it's very obvious what I'm going to say. It's an opportunity for populist governments to advance their agenda and um, and speak about uh, the the foreign threat. So as always, we have those two tendencies that go hand in hand. And I think it's um, it's really important that people make a rational case and show what we gain and what we lose uh, from from every choice. Uh, that that we make. Thank you very much, Lorenzo. I think that's a good way to end the podcast. Uh, we can uh, repeat where you can be found. You can be found on Twitter at Piccoli Meister. Yes, as I as I said today, that's an account that I opened long time ago. So I feel a bit ashamed of of the way it sounds. But that is my Twitter account, and then people can also find me on the on the websites of the two research centers where I work. So one is the NCCR on the Move, which is a Swiss project on migration and mobility, and which we find very topical at the moment, of course. And the other one is Global Seed, 
uh, at the European University Institute in Florence. And uh, the work that I presented today would not have been possible without uh, my colleagues and uh, partners uh, working uh, there. Thank you very much, uh, Lorenzo. Thanks, Alex. Uh,